Only the best run here at the Indianapolis 500. Mario, who do you feel you'll have to beat in this year's race? People like uh, A.J. Foyt and uh, Bobby Unser, for instance. Stand by for the checkered flag. Absolutely incredible. Danny Sullivan spun in front of Mario Andretti. A.J. has done it. Beyond the Bricks with Jay Query and Mike Thompson on 93.5 and 107.5, The Fan. Hard to believe it, but for this program, we are already now working our way through the short shoot between turns one and two in terms of the weeks of this show, because of course in the month of May, that means four weeks of shows, and this is the capper for week number one of Beyond the Bricks. We appreciate those who have tuned in, both on 1075thefan.com as well as 1070thefan and 1075fm or on podcast. My name is Jake Query, and I am joined by Mike Thompson once again talking about the Indianapolis 500 here in the month of May. And what finally, Mike, I'm going to jinx it again. Starting to look like May again outside. You see, you did it. Now, tomorrow it's going to be 45, and it's going to pour all day because you did that the other day. I, I know. Well... Well, hopefully that's, although it is supposed to rain all day, I believe on Sunday. Happy Mother's Day to all of you, Um, whether it be that you are a mother or you're thinking of your mother, happy Mother's Day coming up on Sunday. All right, a lot to talk about today. We've talked over the course of the first week for those who have been kind enough to listen a lot about drivers of the 50s. We'll continue that conversation probably chronologically and just work our way up towards. So next week, I would anticipate a lot of discussion on some of the great drivers of the 60s and some of the changes and innovation that took place. But I wanted to step back a little bit today and talk about some of the media coverage of the Indianapolis 500 and the auxiliary things that go into the race. And Mike, reality, music is a big part of the Indy 500, whether we're talking about the pre-race ceremonies, whether we're talking about the accentuation of the broadcasts, it is an all-sensory event. So oh, to speak. absolutely. Um, I mean, I can't imagine the 500 without, you know, the bands, the Purdue band and all those things. And it, it's just all part of the pageantry and all part of the lead up. Right. I mean, you those are those things that you anticipate, uh, you know, all morning. And, you know, it's that TikTok, right? You, you're getting closer and closer and closer to the to the drop of the green flag. But, yeah, I mean, the music is all part of that. You know, you and I talked, uh, as a matter of fact, Oh, I don't know, a week ago or so I called you and I said, hey, I've got a question for you. And I don't know that this is a fact, but because you and I concluded between the two of us that it probably is a fact, I'm going to say that that means it is, in fact, a fact. And that is that in terms of the pre-race, aside from the obvious, which would be the playing of the national anthem, for example, but in terms of, of things or or events that have been invited into the pre-race of the Indianapolis 500, the inclusion of the Purdue University Marching Band, I believe, has to be the longest running, correct? It's an amazing tradition. Uh, yeah, I mean, it dates it dates back. I mean, what, what did we decide? 1919, to, yeah. I believe, was the first year that the yeah. Purdue University Band was there. And so when you're, when you're talking about long-running traditions, that's one of the longest, if not the longest, is what we think we've decided between the two of us on that. But, I mean... I can't imagine, you know, and this this pains me because, uh, you know, being an Ohio State fan, 
but this pains me to say but i can't imagine the the pre-race ceremonies without the purdue band it just that's that's just part of the fabric of the event as far as i'm concerned well to incorporate ohio state into it mike because would be know, a little difficult wouldn't it well they can have rondell moore just running all over the place right with the <laughs> band no, itself. They, can, they can not do that <laughs> and it would remind you of exactly the buckeyes yeah, that's only you're only saying that because our friend nick yeoman i mean every time i get a little salty about uh, that ohio state purdue game he'll put a rondell moore you know a little video for me together and tweet it to me and things like that so i think that's what you're referring to i want to talk also about and we're going to get into you know those aspects of what i'm talking about the pre-race but also one of them that i don't know this but i have a suspicion that because now i think there had been talk about it going away and i get the feeling now just because of the changes that have taken place with last year's race with no fans and then this year with limited fans that it may be the time for them to kind of under the radar in one of the great traditions but that is the balloon launch and I don't know that the balloon – I don't. I want to be very clear here, and I don't want to speak for you, but I don't know by any stretch that the balloon launch is has come to an end. But I know in talking with Doug Bowles, publicly speaking, including in media interviews, you know, it has been discussed from an environmental standpoint about the balloon launch and whether or not it is something that they maybe will not continue. I'll be curious to see this year if they do. Yeah, I haven't heard. I'll, I'll be completely honest. I haven't heard one way or the other whether the balloon launch will continue. Um, you know, I know there's a lot of strong feelings on both sides of that particular issue. Um, you know, I mean, there's there's a lot of folks who, you know, obviously want that tradition to continue. They believe that tradition is sacred and it doesn't matter, um, you know, what else gets in the way of tradition and things like that. And then there's obviously the uh, the argument that says that you know it's harmful to the environment and and i certainly can see that that there's an argument for that as well so you know i i honestly don't know i'm gonna I tell you what anything i haven't heard anything one way or the other to that um but but uh, you know it wouldn't would it surprise me if that goes away be, because of you know the, the pandemic and and things you know th- i think things are going to change a lot of things are changing, right, because of the pandemic and, and, and things that have, have we, we've gotten used to. You know, it's almost – I almost am kind of looking at this year as a soft reset and then maybe next year as a, next, as a hard reset. I think that's a real fair way of saying it. Yeah. This, is, this is the refresher course. Yeah, it's, it right? is. It's almost like, yeah, this is the refresher course. And this to me, this is like the soft reset a little bit. And, you know, things have dropped off um silently let's let's remember i mean like the uh, the christmas lights situation that that went away immediately and that i'm telling you i don't believe that's coming back at all i mean the, lights at the brickyard yeah you're talking about. yeah the, yep. the lights at the brickyard i don't believe that's coming back I, I in wonder, my opinion that i don't believe that event is coming back could it's part just, of that be because uh the state fairgrounds i thought did a phenomenal job with their with their lights and i wondered if once the lights at the brickyard this past year not being done and the state fairground suddenly becoming the place where everybody was going for lights, did that all of a sudden just allow kind of a soft transition of, yeah, again, I think out of the light business. Yeah. Again, I think there's just a number of different things that you can kind of, you know, softly, you know, soft reset. Right. And, and, um, gives the opportunity for the, the folks out at IMS to, to do some things differently. And, and it's, it is, it's almost, I'm really looking at this, this year is it's a little bit what you said. It's a refresher course. It's almost in my mind, a little bit of a rebirth, you know, last year was its own thing, no fans. Um, and everything's kind of a reset this year on a soft 
basis because it's not you know not everybody is going to get to be there this year and then next year hopefully everything is as normal as normal will be but you know i mean we we hoped this year was going to be normal right it's not all the way normal it's more normal than certainly last year was um, i'm just hopeful look you know the guy i'm i'm really hopeful for it to be normal for is mr penske i mean he he put everything on the line for this he's put everything you know he's put his heart and and his wallet certainly into this into the facility and he's he wants he wants the guest experience to be this incredible guest experience and he hasn't been able to show correct he hasn't been able to show anybody what he's done right i mean he's put you know he's put the monster tv on the back of the pagoda and he's you know he's upgraded the facilities in the pagoda plaza and and all these things, and he hasn't even gotten to show anybody the and it fruits is of the impressive. labor. I yeah. mean, the the renovations have been impressive. Yeah. So I mean, I, you know, I mean, I, I really feel for the for the staff that has worked so hard out there to you know to put on, you know, an amazing event for folks, and they haven't even gotten to do it yet. So you know, I, I really hope that uh, you know this year, obviously. You know, 40% capacity, and then I really hope it can be next year 100% capacity for everybody. Okay, let's go back to talking about um, with the balloon launch. I'm going to give a couple of facts, and then you tell me if I am recalling them incorrectly, okay? Uh, Fact number one, the balloon launch is a tip of the cap to the first event that took place on the grounds of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, which was, in fact, a balloon race. And so, therefore, it is to signify that event correct i believe that's the case yes i believe that's a it's a it's an homage to the you know the first event was a balloon a balloon event and then also one of the years i want to say in the 20s i could be wrong in this that they did the balloon launch one of the spectators who witnessed it was so captivated by the visual image of it that he decided to use that as the logo for his fledgling bread company which is why the wonder bread bag has balloons on it that is correct that that is correct um he said that at the time he said that the spectacle of the balloons was such a wonder and the that is how it became Wonder Bread, and then that's why there are balloons on the Wonder Bread loaf. Now, the balloon launch is always done towards the completion of Back Home Again in Indiana, which began in 1946. One of the first great traditions we're going to revisit here at the Indianapolis 500 is the singing of Back Home Again in Indiana. Now, many of you probably think that that began with Jim Neighbors. That is not necessarily the case. He first sang it in 1972, and the story goes, Mike, that Tony Holman did not have someone to sing back home again in Indiana. Jim Neighbors was there as a celebrity. Tony Holman walked up to him and said, do you want to sing the song for us? Yes, the song, and that's not the song he thought he was going to sing. And so he agreed, right, thinking that he, and he didn't know the words, correct? He thought he was singing the national anthem. Right. So he was under the impression, I'm singing the national anthem, so he thought, oh, this will be easy. Everybody knows the national anthem. He didn't know that they meant the song being Indiana. Of course, we all refer to it as Back Home Again in Indiana. It's actually, the title of the song is actually Indiana. And he didn't know the words, so he's hastily scrawling the, you know, the, uh, the words to the song on a piece of paper so he can go sing it, and worked it out with the band. And and the the, ma- the maestro asked him, you know, what key do you want it in? And he, he basically said to the maestro, "I'll follow you, maestro." You know, and and did a bang up job. And then that's how that tradition began of of Jim Neighbors singing it. But yeah, he didn't didn't even know the words to the song he was supposed to sing. Neighbors first sang it in 1972, sang it consecutively until 78. Peter Marshall did it in 79, Dr. Richard Smith in 80, Phil Harris in 81. And then 
Jim Neighbors returned kind of intermittently until finally in 1987, he basically took over as the guy that did it every single year until 2007 when he was too ill to come back. He then returned, did so until 2014, and then straight no chaser in 2015. Jim Cornelius eventually, uh, Jim Cornelius and Josh Kaufman did it as well. But who was the last person to sing back home again in Indiana before Jim Neighbors kind of became the staple? Well, that actually was a 73-year-old gentleman, happened in 1971, and we're talking about somebody who came out, what, some seven years before he ultimately passed away, sadly, right? Yeah, and he wanted to do this his entire life, as I understand it. This was a lifelong goal. This wasn't just some spur-of-the-moment situation like Jim Neighbors, hey, we need somebody to sing the song, oh, let's pull this guy out of the crowd. I mean, this was actually an aspiration for this particular gentleman. Um, And what's interesting is, you know, this guy had had some success at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway before, and and uh, so it's it's interesting that this is something that was actually on his mind that he wanted to do. Now, the question would be, now, wait a minute. I thought that this was a new tradition in, like, say, the early 70s. It was not. It began in 1946. So for Peter DiPaolo, who himself had won the Indianapolis 500, to have aspiration to sing back home again in Indiana would make sense because by the time he was able to do so, he was, what, the 25th singer or the 25th year of the singing. This is race day 1971, Peter DiPaolo with Indiana, which we now know as Back Home Again in Indiana. Back home again in Indiana Where it seems that I can see That gleaming candlelight Still shining bright Through the thick Of course, Tom Carnegie saying, there he is, race fans, the 1925 winner, Peter DiPaolo. Now, Peter had more success, I I think, driving a race car than... Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not sure who was more successful, our our gentleman last night who was doing the beginning of the Gold Cup for us, (laughs) or or Mr. DePaulo singing the song. Here they come, and there they go. (laughs) There they go. Yeah, I'm not not sure who was more successful. But God love him, right? Oh, yeah, hey, give it a try. 73 years old at that point. I wouldn't have tried that in front of all those fans, I mean, clearly, but but, uh, yeah, absolutely. And he also changed some of the words a little bit, which is funny to me because even Jim Neighbors would do that. You know, sometimes you hear the candlelight is burning bright sometimes you hear candlelight is gleaming bright i mean mm-hmm. there are variations of it oh absolutely yeah i mean i think i think everybody kind of puts their own little spin on it but uh, it has it is an interesting history of the folks who have done it i mean uh, i don't know if you've listened to the the dinah shore version she she does uh, a, a version 
And she then does a, I believe she does a second verse where she asks the crowd to kind of sing it with her. And I think she's the only one who ever did it, like a second verse where she basically asks everybody, well, sing along with me, you know, something like that. So, I mean, but then again, now Dinah Shore, when she sang it, can you tell me the year in which she would have been doing it? I believe she sang the uh, Indiana in 1955. That is correct. 55 and then later was because she was actually in the booth with sid after uh she sang she was there on behalf of chevrolet and uh, that's one of the reasons why the tie-in was she she ended up back in the booth with sid um later on in the broadcast i believe and of course the radio broadcasts you know during this time and in 1971 we're talking about really the peak years in terms of the radio broadcast in as sid collins had built it so to speak um and different, yeah, as we've talked, I think you and I have talked about it, and I know I've talked to Paul Page about this. The the radio broadcast with Sid and the radio broadcast with Paul Page, obviously, they are two completely different. I mean, you could be listening, you might as well be listening to two completely different events because, you know, Sid, I kind of liken it to Sid is the master of ceremonies for the world's biggest, you know, party, and, and there's a race going on at the same time, obviously. Sid's not going to have play-by-play the way you guys do, you know, with, with Mark. You know, Mark's leading you guys around play-by-play. You know, Sid didn't do that that much, except if the cars were really close together near the end of the race, he might send, you know, a couple laps of play-by-play. But Sid's more of an MC, kind of a host role. Um, you know, here's the 10-lap rundown with Charlie Brockman or, or John DeCamp doing that. But he's more of an MC, kind of, you know, hosting the world's largest, you know, barbecue-type situation, where Paul Page, obviously Mark James, you know, all, all the folks that have followed it's it's what we know today as a traditional broadcast. Well, Paul Page was a huge, huge part of that in terms of the evolution of the radio network. And Paul Page himself, a huge part of putting really the epicenter of, for lack of a better term, like sexiness to the Indy 500, translating it into television. We'll talk about exactly that. We'll let you hear from how Sid Collins introduced the Indianapolis 500 in the early years on the radio and transitioning into how Paul Page introduced it in terms of television. That conversation is next on Beyond the Bricks. This is Radiant Radio WIBC in Indianapolis. And now, one of the world's greatest sports events, the 500-mile race, brought to you direct from the Indianapolis Motor Speedway by Stark & Wetzel, makers of the finest quality meat products. Good morning, sports fans everywhere from Indianapolis, Indiana. 200,000 people are here this May 30th, 1960, to witness the 44th annual running of the 500-mile race. The world's greatest race course is resplendent and majestic today with flags of all nations unfurled. The Purdue University marching band in the background salutes the crowd with their brand of musical Hoosier hospitality. Shortly, thousands of very color balloons will shoot from a gigantic tent to fill the sky with color. And on the racetrack itself, right now, the 33 fastest racing machines and the 33 most daring drivers in this nation tense with anticipation of the grueling grind ahead. The next four hours will bring fame and glory to some. Disappointment and heartbreak, perhaps, to others who have waited since last year for another crack at the pot of gold at the end of this rainbow of color. That's how it sounded on WIBC Radio, as you heard Sid Collins say, on May 30th of 1960 for the running of the 44th 
Indianapolis 500-mile race, which would be run won, of course, in a dynamic finish by Jim Rathman. That's an example of one of those years that at near the end of the race, Sid was actually, they were doing play-by-play. They were, let's follow them around, guys. And so they would they would actually do turn-by-turn, turn, follow, follow the drivers around. And at that time, you had the old Pagoda, and you had Sid Collins in the, the master control tower, as he would say. Mm-hmm. And the names and faces for the most part were the same year in and year out on the radio network but um i'm trying to think by 1960 who the roster would have been mike ahern would not have been there yet i don't believe not yet i don't think uh doug zinc um would have been there i believe so you'd have doug zinc you'd have um ron carroll ron carroll You'd have, um, well, uh, Lou Palmer was there by then. At the, By 1960, Lou Palmer was for sure there by then. Uh, yeah, Ron Carroll. Um, Howdy Bell would not Howdy, have been there. Howdy yet. Bell, I don't believe, would have been there by then. Luke Walton on Pitt Road. Um, so, yeah, you had. Here is the 1960 roster, okay? So that year when uh, Sid Collins Jim, was uh, doing it. So was uh, Jim Shelton still there? He absolutely would have had to have been there, I think, right? I believe so. In 1960? Um, so in 1960, in turn number one, um, you had uh, Bill Frosch, okay, who I believe passed away within the last couple of years. I believe that Bill, I, I could be wrong in that. He did it from '57 until 1965. Uh, in turn number two, at that time, uh, the driver analyst. By the way, do you want to guess who the analyst would have been? Uh, was uh, well, Freddie and and. And uh, Len Sutton turned, you know, they kind of passed it back and forth, but it would have been Freddie at that point. Correct. Freddie Agamishi yeah, was the driver expert. Because uh, Len Sutton was still driving at that point, I believe. So uh, Then you had in turn, now back then, you know, you had the backstretch as well because they would do turn two and then into the backstretch. So turn two in 1960 was John Peterson. Then in the backstretch, Doug he would Zink, have right? thrown it to actually uh, Bernie Herman. Oh, Bernie Herman. During so a six was year was Doug Zink on the crew that year? Then. Lou Palmer was in, in turn three. three. Yeah, he started in three in 58. Because uh, remember, he had the, the accident is the first thing basically he said on the radio. And let's see, the north turns was in turn four, it was Jim Shelton. Hmm. So that was your roster lineup primarily. But as we know, Sid Collins, and I don't know that Sid Collins predates me, obviously. I mean, I was a child when Sid Collins, as were you, Mike. We were kids when Sid Collins, uh, unfortunately, you know, passed away just before in May of 77, before the 77 race. But um, it is impossible to overstate the impact that Sid Collins had not only on the broadcast of the Indianapolis 500, but truth be told, in making the Indianapolis 500 ubiquitous among the American culture, Sid Collins as responsible as Tony Holman or anybody else. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we we talked a couple of days ago about that that show I produced where it was the the 10 most influential people who were not, you know, drivers in the race and Sid Collins was on the list because I mean, he had a worldwide you know, audience who knew the name Sid Collins. And, and it was because, I mean, the work he did putting together, you know, when it looked like the, the networks were, the network had fallen apart, basically. And Sid Collins put the Indianapolis Motor Speedway network together and took it worldwide and grew it, you know, every year was growing this, the, you know, and he would so proud. You could hear him every year, you know, we're in this many countries this year and on this many stations this year. And every year there was, it was such a source of pride to Sid, but, but yeah, I mean, you you're, you're right. You cannot overstate 
the impact Sid Collins had on on the event. Um, you know, and I and that's one of the reasons why. Um, you know, I don't know if people may have seen on my Twitter uh, feed a couple about a week ago on the anniversary of his passing on the second of May. I always tweet out on May second every year, and I just put a picture of Sid and I put "Thank you, Sid." Yeah, I do it every year. Um, because I, you know, I think we need to remember Sid Collins. I think we need to remember his contributions to the event. Um, you know, I, I would, I would just hate there to be a, ever to be a day where people don't remember Sid Collins because he, he's exactly what you said. I mean, he's a giant, um, and he's he's absolutely one of the most important people you know in the history of the event. Now, Sid Collins, of course, during the time that he was doing the race on the radio, he handpicked those that joined the radio network and mike for the guys that we just mentioned all of them they were the best of the best in indianapolis or or midwestern broadcasting and if you got tabbed by sid collins it was the all-star team oh yeah it was a huge and it is still for me don't get me wrong the biggest honor of my career but i'm also smart enough to know that we do not hold a candle at least I don't, to those guys of that era. It was a completely different era in terms of broadcasting. They didn't have, you know, we don't have up in the turns. A lot of people ask me this. I'm up on a platform. I'm in turn three. So I'm on a platform atop the Northeast Vista. Nick Yeoman is in turn one. Michael Young in turn two. Chris Denary in turn four. We have our cell phones, if we so chose, but we don't have monitors and computers. But you do in the booth. And Sid Collins when you hear the old broadcasts and you hear them say, uh, and boys, let's find out who's running in second right now. I believe it might be Peter Ebsen, but let's go to turn two. They didn't have monitors and live timing and scoring and everything to keep track. It's phenomenal the way that they were able to tab everything down. It's amazing to me. Well, look, first of all, it's amazing to me what you guys, you and Nick and all those guys do. I I would never have the talent to do what you guys do. Um, you but you're 100%. Very easily. No, no, no. What you guys do is amazing to me. Um, and, and you talk about honors. Let me digress for one second. One of the biggest honors of my professional career happened last year when, when our friend Mark Janes asked me to put together a piece for the pre-race show for the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Network. I mean, I was, I, I'm not going to lie, I was in tears when I got the email from him. He said, hey, you know, we need we need a segment, um, and we'd like to have this segment on, on Andy Granatelli. Could you put together something with some of the historic audio you got and everything? And I, I'm not kidding you, I had tears in my eyes, and, and I... I, I told everybody I know, I'm, I mean, it was a lifelong, you, you have no idea what the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Network means to me, okay? My happiest days as, as a kid was growing up, having a party in the backyard with my family, listening to the to broadcasts on the, on the radio. We spent the entire day together in the backyard listening to the race. And, you know, we'd have a cookout and everything. And, you know, we did the charts. They'd always say, you know, you know, keep your charts. And, you know, here's here's the top 10 run, you know, here's the 10 lap rundown and everything. We did all that stuff. And we did it for years. And the Speedway Radio Network just means so much to me. And when I got a chance to produce a piece, I mean, I like I say, I know I don't have the talent to do what you and Nick do. But when I got to be on the Speedway Radio Network, I mean, when I heard Mark Janes introduce, here's Mike Thompson with this report, I mean, I was in tears because I was like, okay, I really did something with my life now because I was on the same network as Sid Collins and Donald Davidson and Jim Shelton and Lou Palmer and all my heroes. I mean, I was like, you, I mean, I know I'm probably not doing this justice, but it was, 
It was one of the most important moments of my life. I will admit that the first year that I did the 500 on the radio was 2007. And on a couple of occasions, they had hats with the IMS Radio Network logo on it. And I took like 12 of those hats because I was like, I, I have no idea when I'll ever... I may do this. I may be one and done here, right? Yeah. I, ha, you know, I might be Hector Urib. Hector Rabake. No, yeah. You know, I have no idea, right? So, yeah. at any rate, um, it is a huge honor. And Sid Collins basically tabbed Paul Page as his heir apparent, and Paul Page became, in the most difficult of circumstances, Paul Page, who was both professionally put in a difficult spot after Sid's passing on May second of seventy-seven but also personally, because Paul was very close to Sid. Paul Page, who speaks so highly with such reverence of Sid, both as a broadcaster and as a friend and as a mentor, and now he is given the difficult challenge of inheriting that position. And Paul did an unbelievable job in doing so in the 77 race for A.J. Foyt's fourth win. And then Paul Page did something that Really, I don't know that he's ever gotten the proper credit for him. Paul Page will be inducted into the you know, Hall of Fame at the museum this year. Well-deserved. But Paul took the radio network kind of to the next level when he took over. And as he mentions, with all due respect to the footprint before him, but he modernized it into keeping it with the pace as now in the late 70s, we're looking at speed records and we're talking about breaking 200 miles an hour and we're talking about you know the pursuit of ceilings that people thought could never be broken through and paul page um, worked diligently to bring the radio network along with that innovation to the same level in which racing was changing and so we heard sid collins in 1960 in the open this is paul page in what would have been his 77, 8, 9, 80, fifth year of doing the broadcast. This is Paul Page as he introduced the 1981 Indianapolis 500 on the IMS radio network. It's May 24th, 1981. The place, the world's greatest race course, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. It's race day in Indianapolis. See, you could see it's a little more upbeat and a little less... And that, that's not a, a knock at all. It's just not as old town radio. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And and like I say, I mean, Sid, you know, Sid's was a, you know, I'm the, the master of ceremonies for the world's largest barbecue. There's this event going on at the same time. We're going to have, we're going to have stars. You know, Cesar Romero is going to come up to the booth or Lee Merriweather or, or Michael Landon or Dan Blocker. I mean, you're, you know, it's, it just, it's like a giant, you know, weekend barbecue on radio where there's a giant event going on at the same time i mean you know and that again that's not a knock on sid that's just that's just what radio was at the time and they did it perfectly i mean they did it exactly the way it should have been done at the time right um for the the technology limitations as you said and i mean it's exactly what it should be and then you know i talked to paul a few years ago about this and paul was like one of the things I, I did immediately was I wanted to bring it into an, a new a new era, and I wanted to be able to do the race more as a play by play, and you know, and and be able to talk to all the turn you know announcers in the turns immediately if if necessary if there was an accident or certain things happened, and you know, and so it's a 
again, it's an it's an interesting delineation between the two eras, the Sid era and and Paul Page and everyone everyone who's followed him in the uh, you know chief announcer's chair after that. Now, the other thing that took place during this time, while Paul Page is now the radio network host, the radio network, you know, chief announcer and anchor, the television production of the Indianapolis 500 is also now transitioning from ABC's Wide World of Sports, look at a few clips here, to moving itself into eventually coming off of tape delay, which happened by 86, but suddenly now the Indy 500 is becoming a major television event in the early 80s and into the mid-80s. Not that it wasn't in the 70s, but A.J. Foyt winning for the fourth time in 77 and, and moving forward. Now, all of a sudden, the networks are saying, this might be something we need to carry live. Well, it's a nice little property, isn't it? Especially like with the finish in 1982, you're looking at that and, and they're saying, wait a minute, this is a pretty nice little property we've got here. And so, you know, finally, the decision was made to, uh, you know, become, you know, live television in 1986. And so... You know, it, you're right, and and what's interesting about that is then then the decision is made. Okay, um, you know who are going to be our our standard bearers from the uh, you know the announcers chair there. So we you know we had a, a rotating group of people. That, you know, we had Jim McKay was in it for a while, obviously, and did such a fabulous job. You know, we all know Jim McKay and Jackie Stewart together, and then. Uh, Sam Posey was in the mix and we had Jim Lampley for a year and and so but but it's at one point when they're talking uh, about really moving it into the next era uh, you know Paul Page's name came up and and Paul Page had done work for obviously for NBC and so his name came up as as maybe he should be the lead announcer on the, the broadcast on television and that's how we ended up with Paul Page on as the as the chief announcer on ABC instead of the chief announcer on the IMS radio network. So during the time and there had been a couple of different uh network television anchors. I mean Jim McKay's we talked about Jim Lampley who I thought did a pretty good job. Jim, they, he did it. He was did doing a, it by he did, yeah, he did the a, late 80s. Yeah, he did a fine job and and uh I I thought Jim Lampley did a nice very credible job. And so during the time that television is now banking off of and ABC is profiting off of the Indianapolis 500, that also meant that advertising was becoming big. And so advertising for the Indy 500 included some national brands that actually had some Indianapolis ties. And I don't mean that because of the dubious Speedway tie, but um, places that had started in Indianapolis and now were national chains. This is 1982 from qualifying coverage. But here's one of the commercials as it sounded on ABC. Get ready. It's starting. The race is on. The Burger Chef 500. Get your scorecard, collect stickers, and take off. Finish the race and win the grand prize. One of six Camaro Z28 style like the 1982 Indy 500 base car. Or win instant prizes like racing jackets, digital sport watches, high-power binoculars, and food. Over 400,000 prizes. The Burger Chef 500. The race anybody can win. So enter today and make it fast so see suddenly things are fast moving right i mean they're and that's burger chef from 82 but you can just tell the media and the coverage of the indy 500 is now starting to mirror what the indy 500 is right does that make sense oh absolutely and i mean if you got to see this particular spot in a television form you'd see that the sport watches especially were really fast i mean these are these are some time pieces jake that you would have been really proud in 1982 to have on your wrist yeah, <laughs> you know i'm a wristwatch guy right i know you are I mean, so i know on. i know these particular sport watches I, would have been something that you i'd would, be you'd, proud to have them on my wrist today you probably would still be. right yeah. uh so 
we had the advertising of the 80s. We have the radio network now suddenly, you know, getting up to speed as well. And then Paul Page moves and transitions himself over to television in the late 80s and into the early 90s. And Paul Page, I think, is responsible for putting together the thing that now associates with Indianapolis 500 media coverage as much as anything else. We will play for you what I think is absolutely the best. And maybe we retroactively look at things and romanticize them from our peak years. But in my opinion, the old intros on television that Paul Page did, and we will play for you one of them and then let you hear Paul Page discuss how it came about. And you're going to say to yourself, this is awesome. And that's what we're going to do next on Beyond the Bricks. There were 3 million paving blocks in 1911. Today, only a yard of brick remains. The two-and-a-half-mile path is surrounded by steel and concrete, silent centuries to the history made here. It is a legacy of speed. Between these walls, the risks are great. Emotions come from both ends of the spectrum. The Indianapolis 500-mile race is quite simply a spectacle, a celebration of technology and humanity. Today, it celebrates the diamond anniversary running. It was no different when the track was first planned. The first 500 was the spectacle of its day. The giant track beckoned the best of the age. And 80,000 fans, many arriving by horse and buggy. Ray Haroon won the first challenge. Since then, the lineage has raced on. Men who share a special look. The brotherhood of the best. Down the years, they have sought a common goal. Victory in the Indianapolis 500. In 1925, Pete DiPaolo averaged 100 miles an hour. Today, 220 is the standard. In the 30s, the cars led the technology, cast iron and shaped sheet metal. Today, titanium and carbon fiber define the ultimate racing machine. Space-age electronics now help tame the racing horsepower. Danger has always been a passenger. Like the track and the speed, it is a constant, ever-present. It, too, is a part of the lore. Without that risk, the men are just ordinary. In a flash, a skilled drive transforms to disaster. But man can and does survive the machine. This spring has proven no exception. The fates strike at random. Rick Mears, one of the best. Mark Disborn, one of the rookies. Or veteran Randy Lewis. Each spent his moment over the edge. But man triumphs, as did Rick, a day later, in a new car to take the pole at over 224 miles an hour. Now the heroes of this age wait. They weigh the odds, consider the risks, and they pray the dream today will be theirs. As much changes over 75 races, much stays the same. Skilled hands still lovingly caress and coax the ultimate performance. 34 years ago, A.J. Foyt was an apprentice. Today, he is a master, starting in the center of the front row. In 61, Tony Benthausen died chasing a victory. Today, his son may fulfill his father's dream. 26 years ago, the rookie stripes came off for Mario. Today, there are four Andretti's. Now the 500's first African-American and first Japanese will join the line. Jewel Gu drank six bottles of champagne on his road to victory. Today, it's a frosty bottle of milk that awaits the eventual winner. That and so much more. 
the yard of bricks have witnessed the high-speed passage of history. In just a few hours, 500 miles from now, a 75th story will have been written, a new likeness will be added to a timeless silver cup, and a new name will set atop the lineage of the greatest spectacle in racing, the Indianapolis 500. Live from the world's greatest race course, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Paul Page, as it sounded on May 26th of 1991. There he is, introducing the 75th running of the Indianapolis 500. A couple of notes from that, by the way. Randy Lewis did qualify for that year's race. He finished 14th. A.J. Foyt started in the front row. As Paul had mentioned, he finished 28th. As for the Bettenhausens chasing their father's dream, Gary was 22nd. Tony Bettenhausen, the higher finish, he was 9th. And then you have Hiramachusta and Willie T. Ribs, who he referenced in the intro as well. Willie T. Ribs finished 32nd in that race, and Machusta uh, finished. Do you know what he finished in that race? I do not. 16th. I would not have known if I wasn't looking at it right here. Started 24th, <laughs> finished 16th. But Paul Page, in terms of those iconic intros, the Delta Force intros that were done each year, uh, he commented on exactly what went into what still maintains such a high place in Indy 500 lore. But the question is, was it really that difficult to all put together. Here's Paul Page. It kind of surprised me when I realized that it was happening. Um, when I first went over to ABC, our director was a guy named Don Olmeyer, who had been my executive producer at NBC. Um, but he was a motor racing nut. And the process for putting together what we call the teases, the opening of the show, which is to grab you, to grab that audience that might be changing the channel. You've got to give them something, to, to a reason to stay around. And so in those days, the those teases were done in, in Don Olmeyer's concept of taking the absolute best video that you have and putting them together and having maybe a loose reason as why they're together. And then he might describe that loose reason to me. You know, this is Mario and then Mario here and then his son. I, I don't know why, but they're good shots. And then he'd hand it to me and I'd take, you know, usually about 48 hours to come up with a narrative to match it. And then we'd go in. We did this the week of the race right out at the track. Now they're done big production values and, and shot like movies. But um, And he, the first year we used it, we had Delta Force, but we also put... Um, some other music in there and and some sound bites and we didn't like that. So the next year we liked the song so we put it together and wow uh, it was so fun to write to. The video was so perfect and you were writing about a two minute essay really is what you were writing and I, I never realized actually until about five or six years ago when somebody said hey I saw your stuff on YouTube I'm like what are you talking about? So, oh, there's a there's a whole cult going out there for Delta Force, and so so that that's how it came about. That's how it came about, and that's how it is that we were able to quickly go in the course of an hour, Mike, in talking about all of it. A lot of fun, the radio and television of the Indy 500. Absolutely, uh, you know, I, I really think that it's a great great history that uh, it's fun to talk about. I'll tell you what, have a great weekend, and it's so much fun. We'll do it again at uh, 8 o'clock on Monday. Sound good? Sounds good to me. All right, have a great weekend, folks. That's been Beyond the Bricks.